God is at work through His local church and through the teaching of His Word. This morning on MyBridge Radio, we are pleased to share a favorite message from Christ Place. Here's Pastor Rick Lorimer. The theme that we're jumping into is fight for the house. And I'm not real proud of saying this, but I've, I've been in a few fights. I know I don't look maybe all that like fighting material, but uh, I, I've, been in, I've been in a few, few fights. And one of them that kind of stands out happened when I was in middle school. I weighed maybe 105 pounds. And there was another guy that we got into a war of words. I can't remember why. I think he said something that offended me. And he was in a group that my group didn't hang out with. You know how you kind of break up in, a, in different tribes when you're in middle school and high school. And he was in what we called um, the burnout group. He was part of the group that smoked cigarettes, cigarettes behind Dairy Queen, all right? Um, and uh, later, some of those guys became really good friends. But I mean, in middle school, it's like, you know, there wasn't a lot of respect either way. And so sure enough, it ended up, you know, we're going we're gonna to pick a fight with each other. We picked, a, we picked a time and a place where we're going to get in this fight, which was not smart. He's like six inches taller than me, probably had 50 pounds on me. And um, I show up where we're going to fight. And all of a sudden, there's like a crowd there. Like the word must have got around school, fight, fight, fight. So everybody's there, the people I didn't even recognize. And it was kind of pitiful, to be honest with you, because most of our fight was us circling each other, saying, you throw the first punch. No, you throw the first punch. No, you throw the first punch. And well... Then he actually threw the first punch. And man, it, was, it hit me hard. It was like, whoa, I can't take much of this. He had longer reach. He had more pounds. And so I did what I knew. I'd wrestled in school. So I, I charged him and I was able to get him on the ground. And eventually I had his, his face in the dirt. And, and I, I had his right arm pinned up behind his back. I mean, I, I know that you could break the arm in that way. And I was on top of him. My whole body's leaning on him, a whole hundred pounds, whatever on him. And I start punching him in the face with my left arm. And, and I say, you better give up, man, or I'll break your arm. I'll just keep pounding your ugly face. You know, I'm just like, just going at it. And um, for a while, he's struggling. And then he senses the tension, obviously, in his arm. And he just gets really still. And I think, okay, good. You ready? Now I'm going to let you up. It's over. And I stand up, and I'm ready to be affirmed by the audience, you know, like, ah, I won. And as I turn around, he just cold cocks me. I mean, I ended up having this like, like welt on my forehead off the size of a baseball, you know, and, um, and then we just, I, I see red, I get back into a fighting mode and I can't tell you what happens next. I do remember this, the teachers pulled us apart. We got taken to the principal's office and uh, I think we got suspended for like three days. Um, why am I sharing this with you? Because this is not the kind of fighting we're going to be talking about, <laughs> right? Jesus didn't like punch some dude in the face. I think he may have been tempted, <laughs> but he never punched anybody in the face. And Jude, and it's the book we're diving into, Jude will use the term, will use some athletic terms like fight or contend, and he's not using it in a physical sense, but as a metaphor. Jude is not interested in us um, actually beating up any people group. He is wanting us, though, to learn what it means to stand up to the bully of our nature and potentially false teachers. And I'm going to tell you, Jude is only like, it's a small book, like 25 verses, 613 words altogether. We're going to spend six weeks in it. And God's word is so rich, you're going to find stuff each week that you can apply to your life. And you're going to see that, that right now, Jude is going to set a tone for the whole book. It sets a precedent for what he wants to talk about. And it starts with a salutation. And then the last two verses of, uh, that we're going to focus on will actually lean in to the subject matter. And I'm going to encourage you, man, let's get all that we can 
from this series. Right on? Another plug for why we need to be in connect groups. If you have your Bibles, turn with me to Jude. And we just, we really do, we appreciate God's word. We try to be a church that lives by it. We're not perfect, but we do our best to be integral when interpreting it. So here we are. Here's how Jude is going to start his letter. Look at this. Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ and a brother of James, to those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept for Jesus Christ. Now, we're going to stop there. You know, sometimes we read a whole passage, and we may at some point read more than one verse at a time. But I wanted to just kind of go through these first four verses rather slowly. And I want you to notice something. I want you to see immediately here how Jude identifies himself. He is first and foremost a servant of Jesus Christ. And oh, by the way, brother of James. Now, initially, if you're not familiar with Scripture and some of the names in the New Testament, you might just glance over this. But if you look deeply into it, you'd know that James happened to be a leader in Jerusalem. He led the church in Jerusalem, and he was a half-brother of Jesus. So if Jude is a brother of James, that means Jude is also half-brother of Jesus. And yet, I want you to see how he identifies himself. He doesn't say, hey, this is Jude, the brother of Jesus, the son of Mary. Doesn't list his credentials. Rather, what he does is he says, hey, this is Jude, a servant of Jesus Christ. Right from the beginning, we're seeing what this message is entitled, by the way, traces of grace. Because when you've experienced the grace of God, God begins to work in you a humility. And James does not see his authority to speak to the readers coming from his kinship with Jesus, but his commissioning of being a servant of Jesus Christ. I think that is so cool. Traces of grace. And here's the other trace of grace that we see coming from this very immediate verse is that James wants to serve. There are some of you, you get this because prior to giving your life to Jesus, man, you wanted to be served. But now you find it in your heart to want to serve. And, and you realize that there's nothing too low for you to do. You want to represent Jesus by, by learning to serve others, and specifically maybe right here even in your own church. But Jude doesn't stop there, right? I mean, he obviously identifies who he is, but then he's going to identify who he's writing to. And this is interesting, because unlike Paul and many of the other epistles, he doesn't tell us the city. He actually gives us three descriptors which really are, again, traces of God's grace. And I want to bring it up to you. It's the last part of verse 1. This is what he says. To those who are called, beloved in God the Father, and kept, for who? Jesus Christ. Three traces of grace. This is who he's talking to, the people who are called, the people who are beloved, the people who are kept. And quite honestly, if you're a Christ follower, I mean, he could be writing this letter to you. Because someone who is called of God is someone who has their, their destiny is, is written. They are part of God's plan. They're on God's team. Church, that needs to encourage some of us. Some of you remember back to the PE days when, when the PE instructor used to appoint a captain 
and they would have two teams and the captains would choose who they want on their team. How many of you, maybe they don't do that anymore because that's almost torture on a young person's life. How many of you remember that happening in grade school? Oh yeah, you were there. Lord, help us heal in Jesus' name. Because even if you didn't know God, you prayed, please God, please let them pick me. Please let them pick me. And, and here's what the captains want to do. The captains want to get the best people on their teams. Why? Because they want to win the game. But here's what you need to know if you're a Christ follower is, God picked you. He wanted you on his team. And the cool thing is, you're on the winning team. You're not even the last of his picks because the trumpet hasn't sounded yet. So you're on his team, you're on the winning team. So, man, he's, he's describing grace that you're called. But he says something else. He says, you're beloved in God the Father. I want you to note something here. The word in versus by. That's, that's intentional because it's inferred that we're loved by God. But in the original language, Jude chooses to use the word in because he wants us to understand how important it is to abide in our Father's love, to be in it. This is, this is a cool distinction because it will come with even a picture for us that helps us really understand it more. And it's a picture of a child picked up into his father's arms experiencing the father's love while he or she remains there. And it's in the perfect tense, which means Jude is stressing the present reality of the father's love. Listen, yeah, we can all academically say I'm loved by God, but are you experiencing his love in person right this moment? Are you, are you learning what it means, as Corey Tinboom once said, to... Uh, don't, not to wrestle, but to nestle, that, that you know what it means to be in your father's arms. See, Jude doesn't want this to be merely an objective statement of God's love. He wants you to experience it. So we're called and we're beloved in God. And, and then he says, we're kept. Now this might just kind of think, okay, we're kept, but this also is a trace of grace because God wants you to understand something. While some people choose to move outside the authority and the umbrella of God's protection, that's never God's heart. That God will always default to keeping you. And his grace is huge. And he wants you to understand that this is the posture of the Father's heart, to keep you. Why is this essential? Because in just a few seconds, we're gonna look at the next few verses and we're gonna see there are some people that have chosen not to stay under the protection of God by their own choices. So right from the beginning, Jude is setting a tenor, a precedent for this book, that we are in a secure position. Those whom he's writing to are in a secure position. They're, man, they're called, they're beloved, they're, they're kept. And, and then he's going to add to it by what he says next, which is really kind of cool. And it's really a prayer of blessing over those whom he's writing. Look at this in verse 2. He says, may mercy, peace, and love be multiplied to you. Now, I... I love that. Mercy, peace, and love multiplied. In other words, he doesn't want us just to have a little bit of dose or a little bit of touch. He doesn't want you sprinkled with mercy and peace and love. Man, he wants it overflowing in your life. How many of you wouldn't mind having a little mercy, a little bit of peace, a little bit of love just dousing you today, right? Again, these are traces of grace. People that don't know the grace of God, they can't understand mercy Oh, they can maybe define it to some degree, but they've never experienced it. And mercy is not to be one and done. 
Verse said that his mercies are new every morning. It's to be experienced. So again, Jude's trying to get us to live in the present reality. Man, mercy and peace and love. And, and if, I'm gonna encourage you because I don't have the time. I would love it if this week, some of you spent some time diving into those three words, mercy and, and, and peace and love. And this is kind of fun because you won't find Paul talk a lot about mercy. He'll just focus on grace. But mercy is a unique part of grace because it's God not giving us what we deserve. We all deserve to be punished, but God doesn't punish us. It's mercy, and he gives us peace, and he gives us love. Come on, somebody. How many of you want that? That's just really cool. So we're in this very secure place, and then he launches into verse 3, which is going to tell us why he's writing them this letter. So go with me to verse 3. He says this, Beloved, although I was very eager to write you about our common salvation. I found it necessary to write appealing to you to contend for the faith. There's that athletic term, contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. Say saints. saints. Yes, not capital S, saints. So it, it, what was delivered to all the, to all the people that are, that are right with God? We'll hit that in just a moment. I want you to see right from the beginning, Jude had initially a different intent for his letter. He's writing to be encouraging, maybe have talk about the great stuff of, of the gospel, the stuff that we all get to experience and growing in our relationship with one another. Um, but in the midst of getting ready to write this and pen this book, this letter, the Holy Spirit starts doing something. And the word necessary in the Greek implies pressure or compression. So all of a sudden he's getting ready to write, he's being squeezed by the Holy Spirit. Now, if if you have traces of grace in your life, you all know what conviction feels like. If you understand how grace leaves a trace, then you know what it means for the Holy Spirit to not let you continue a certain direction without sensing him bringing you back or, or, or what have you. And so it is Jews writing. All of a sudden he feels this, this compression, this squeezing, and, and he realizes he has to write about something else, something more serious. And you're going to see the tone now where he's talked about God's part, what God has done for us, now he's going to start talking about what's our part and what we have to do. He said, I found it necessary that to, to appeal to you to contend for the faith that was once for all delivered to the saints. I mean, this is what, this is, this is what God's calling us to do in this whole series, is to learn what it looks like to contend. That's the Greek word, by the way, that is called agonizomai. It's where we get the word agonize. It's where we get the word agonize. Um, you, it's, a, it's a picture of an athlete pushing himself or herself while training. It's, it's the boxer sparring in the ring and hitting the bag. It, go back to watch some Rocky movies when he's drinking that orange juice with those raw eggs and he's running before he works out in the gym and he's just pushing himself. And when he's done, he's sore. Why? Because he's exerted vigorously his muscles. And this is what the picture of contend is. It's some translations say fight. God wants us to contend. Fight. And it's not necessarily a physical, but it's spiritual um, and, a, and a spiritual and emotional mental exercise that he wants us to have. And so you're saying, well, Rick, what are we contending for? Well, he says, he makes it, he gets really forward with this. He says, contend for the faith. He doesn't say just contend for your faith because he's not just talking about your individual faith. He's talking about fighting for the house and what needs to be the main focus of a house of worship. Jews concerned about the local church. 
And when you hear faith being referred to in scripture, don't assume it's talking about all the doctrines of Christianity. Don't assume that it's referring to all the dogmas or the different um, distinctives of our different brands of Christianity. When Jude is talking about faith here, he's talking about that one core piece of theology that really makes us different than all other religions in this world. And he says, if you're not careful, if you're not careful, you'll lose the focus of keeping this the main thing. And you say, Rick, well, what is our faith then? What is the main thing? Well, it can be boiled down to a sentence, really. And it's, and it's profound. It's simply this. It's that we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Folks, that is the core theology of the gospel. The core theology. This is what we have to fight for. Why? Because, and I'm telling you, the last three years, we've seen this more than ever before. There are going to be teachers and prophets and pastors who are going to try to bring you another gospel. They're going to try to get you to wrap your passions around other things. And if we're not careful, we'll be distracted and we'll lose the very thing that Jesus came to earth for. That we are saved by grace through faith in Jesus Christ. Grace from God and faith in Jesus Christ are core theologies. And grace is that core theological word. Core theological word. Powerful stuff. He then goes on. He says, hey, yeah, you contend for the faith. And guess what? That's the message that's been delivered to all the saints. Well, folks, that's us. If you're a believer and you've been saved by grace through your belief, through your belief in Jesus Christ, then you have been elevated to sainthood. La. <laughs> and it's nothing you've done. It's what God has done in you. It's, it's that we're saved by grace, through faith in Jesus. Okay, we're contending for our faith. But Jude, come on. I mean, why write a whole letter about this? Why are we having to contend for our faith? And now he's going to bring us the reason why in verse 4. Check it out. For certain people have crept in unnoticed who long ago were designated for this condemnation. Ungodly people who, now listen, this is quite the allegation, who pervert the grace of our God into sensuality, or that could also be interpreted as sexual immorality, and deny our only master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Man, that's powerful. That's why we have to fight for our faith, because it's possible for people to, to creep in, and their teachings or their lifestyle somehow influences us to live the way they're living. That word crept into the local church is an important word. Some translations actually use the word infiltrate. And so Jude's language is giving us this, this sense that, that these guys are creepers, but nobody knows they're creepers because they're saying the right words. They're, they're, they, they understand even grace. They probably even experience grace for themselves. But somewhere, what they once affirmed, they now deny this is a big deal to Jude. These interlopers, whether some, some theologians speculate that they were itinerant preachers or prophets who have now followings in the local church. And this is why Jude is being, he's being squeezed by the Holy Spirit. This is a big deal. Church, this is probably more a big deal today than it was even then. With access to the internet, to the isolation so many of us experienced through COVID, 
to the success, to the, um, to the vulnerability we all have to want to somehow enjoy culture and be like our culture. It's so easy to let grace abound. Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who was killed by the Nazis, he said, that's called cheap grace. It's an abuse of grace. And Jude is trying to draw our attention to this. These teachers have somehow departed from their very faith that they still identified with. By doing that, they're trampling on the grace of God and undermining the authority of Jesus Christ. And it's crazy because they're doing it to the very core theological part of what Christianity is, grace. So my question to you is, are you seeing the traces of grace in your life? Because Judah's making it real clear, for those who are saved, those who are saints, there's traces of grace. But you've got to be careful, because if you're not careful, that very thing, that grace, can become something that you use as a license to sin. That you can allow God's goodness and his patience and his mercy and his forgiveness and his love and his peace and begin to take it for granted and eventually live the life you want to live, forgetting that he's the Lord Jesus Christ. That was actually a good little preaching point right there. (laughs) Jude says they pervert the grace of God. They have understanding of grace and they use it to justify the way they live. Grace has become a license for their sexual immorality and really their rebellion to the local authority and the authority of the church, being Jesus himself. You see, God's grace is not a license to sin. I think some of the reasons why we have maybe a tendency to lean that way is because when we give our lives to Jesus, we experience um, amazing grace that saved such a wretch as me. I once was lost and now I'm found. And I remember when I gave my life to Jesus, I so loved, I was trying to to describe it. And one person said to me, you know, Rick, you can't earn it. There's nothing you can do to deserve it. It's God's unmerited favor on your life. We live in a culture where it's all about, you know, you earn respect and you, you, you need to get a job where you get paid to a level what you deserve. And so this is, this is a concept that's really hard for us in the Western world. But yet when we experience, it's like, oh, grace. I want more grace. More grace. Thank you, God, for that unmerited favor. And if we're not careful, we lose sight of the fact that there's more to grace than just saving you. As a matter of fact, I want to read you a formal definition of grace. Here it is. God's grace is the spontaneous and unmerited gift of divine favor in the salvation and the regeneration of sinners and the divine influence operating in individuals for their sanctification. Now, there's some big words there, but but if you like break that down, you'll see that grace has two sides, that there's two sides of grace. There's, There's the God's grace that saves us, and then there's God's grace that sustains us. You see, grace is not one and done. God didn't just come to save you from the lakes of fire. God came to sustain you to become more like Jesus. See, that part of regeneration, that, that's when we're saved, God regenerates our spirit. It comes alive, and our conscience becomes renewed. And all of a sudden, you may feel more like a sinner after you give your life to Jesus than before. I sure did. What happens, though, is we, if we start ignoring that regeneration process, we become acclimated to ignoring the work of the Holy Spirit and God's sustaining grace in our life. 
See, God's grace is not a license to sin, but it's an invitation to be more like Jesus. But sometimes we say, no, I don't want to be more like Jesus because that's too hard or that doesn't really fit culture. Hmm. When I first gave my life to Jesus, I was overwhelmed with God's grace, but there were a lot of parts of my life that were still pre-grace, period. You know what I'm talking about? Like, I, as a minor, I'm not proud of saying this, and we have young people in the house, I'm in no way giving you license to do this, but I partied really hardy when I was a teenager. Um, I got drunk quite a bit as a teenager. Uh, and after I got my life to Christ, gave my life to Christ, I still got drunk as a minor. As a matter of fact, my parents went to New Orleans for a business trip and I had a kegger at my house so I could witness to my friends with a beer in my hand. And I'm so grateful that I was in a church that wasn't legalistic. They didn't say, here's what a Christian looks like. You gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this, you gotta do this. They just taught truth. And they allowed the Holy Spirit and God's grace to do a work. Um, that was a church that came out of the holiness movement. So at one time, they were very legalistic, but they realized that wasn't grace. But they also realized grace wasn't this license to do whatever you want to do. I mean, that's what we saw, you know, we, that's what really we see in America today. We have people going to churches because they want to be in a church that just tells them what they want to hear. So churches have become marketplaces and people shop around to find a church that's going to help adjust to their lifestyle. And you're saying, you can't, don't fall prey to that. That's a teaching out there. That's, that's happening in the local churches out there. Be the church that preaches the truth and talks about the truth. It won't, it won't condemn you, but it will preach the truth. And look for traces of grace in the leadership. Look for traces of grace in your pastor. It's okay to do that. You've got to want that. And that's the scary part of, of following people who aren't under authority or following a church where, where you, have, you can't actually know the people that are leading the church. Traces of grace. Jude says, wow, they pervert the grace of God. And um, I eventually, no one had to say, Rick, you got to quit partying so hard. You know what? I came to tell you the date when I chose to no longer drink. I mean, I chose not to drink at all. And I came from an alcoholic home. That was a trace of grace. And you know what? The, the more I was open to, to letting God's truth in my heart, more traces of grace accumulated. And the Bible calls that sanctification. That sanctification, by the way, is a cousin of the word saint. Because they both refer to being set apart. Remember, sanctification means being set apart. And a saint is someone who's been set apart for God's plans and purposes. Church, look at me. Lean in right this moment. God has a plan for your life. He wants a grace awakening in your life. So that the grace that saved you becomes the grace that sustains you that sanctifies you. That helps you live differently than all everybody else. Not so you can look down at your neighbor. No, so you can actually extend a hand up. So you can offer people hope that there is a different life. There is a different way to live. This is what God's grace wants to do in us and through us. You see, ultimately what you'll see in the book of Jude is this theme that God's grace demands a whole life response. I love that in John chapter 17, Jesus prays a prayer and he prays for us. And he says, Lord, I pray not that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the devil. And the Lord, you sanctify them by your truth. So 
Church, let's welcome truth. Let's be a people that say, it's not just about my neighbor hearing truth. I want to hear truth. And I want grace to do a greater work in me. Church, I, I'm not the man I want to be. I, I'm fall, I fall short as a father. I, fall, I still fall short as a husband. My wife knows I fall short as a pastor, as your pastor. I, I, I fall so short in a lot of ways. But hear me, by God's grace, I'm nowhere the man I used to be. The grace of God. Thank you for joining us this morning for a favorite message from Pastor Rick Lorimer from Christ Place. If you'd like to hear this message again or more like it, check out Heard On Air on the MyBridge Radio app or online at mybridgeradio.net.